0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I bring you uh, greetings from two places that love this church very much. One is Whitten Avenue Bible Church, where I serve as an elder, as you already heard. And then, uh, and the other is Phoenix Seminary. Does this go up? Can I move this? Oh, there we go. (laughs) Oh, I'll just carry this around. It'll be fine. No big deal. Okay. That's a no, then. (laughs) The other is, uh, sorry, the other is Phoenix Seminary, where I, I teach New Testament, and it's Always great to come to Church on Mill because I get to see so many of my students here. So um, this morning, oh, ah, there it is. Okay, look at that. See, there are some things a PhD does not help you do. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) All right, this morning we're going to continue your series in the book of Mark. So if you would, open your Bibles to the gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter two, all right? And um, I want to start with a question. I wonder if you've noticed something that I have noticed. I wonder if you've noticed how busy people are these days. Everybody's busy. When you ask somebody how they're doing, the response may be something like, fine, you know, great, or okay. But it seems like more and more the answer given is busy. How are you? I'm busy, right? It's one of the things that uh, the author David Zoll noticed in his book, and he talks about it there. He says it's just one of the forms that our religious impulse shows up in modern society, modern culture. I think probably particularly here in the U.S., where we are known for our hard work ethic. Um, But he says that despite our society being more and more secularized, he argues in his book that we are not actually becoming less religious. He says that instead, our religious impulses, these ingrained desires for a kind of religion, just show up in different places, in different ways, given our secularizing tendencies. Places like, as he goes through them in the chapters of his book, places like career, or parenting, or technology, or food, or politics. And his last chapter, I think, is on romance. And in each case, he argues that what we are after in these, in these areas of our life is a busyness, a kind of busyness, or what he calls a form of enoughness. A form of enoughness, he calls it. He says, if you listen closely, you'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, in some cases, woke enough, good enough, right? And when it comes to busyness, then, he says, keeping up with the Joneses, Now means trying to outschedule them, right? So much so that busyness has become a kind of status symbol all of its own. A public display, he says again, of enoughness. I wonder if you feel one form or another of this desire to be enough, this need to be enough. Perhaps for you, you see it in your career. It may well be in a relationship, a new relationship that you hope will turn into a long relationship. Perhaps it's your role at school, or maybe it's even your role here at church, a desire for enoughness. See, I suspect that this desire to be enough is universal, and that none of us is actually exempt. And the question I want to raise for you this morning is, what do we do with it? What do we do with this desire, this need to be enough? I want to try to show you from our passage this morning in Mark chapter 2, the way that Jesus turns out to be enough and in fact not only the way that he turns out to be enough but the way that he challenges the things that we try to find the things that we try to make enough for ourselves all right and I want to show you how he can meet these this need in a way that we never can so I've got three three points that I want to work through this morning in our text the first is I want to look look at how this question comes up in our passage our, this need that we have for enough. All right, so I want to talk about that for a minute. And then I want to, see, want to show you why, uh, how Jesus presents himself as being enough, particularly in terms of the term he'll use for himself as the bridegroom. And then finally, I want to tweak that last point just a little bit. So if point number two is that Jesus is enough, I want to tweak it at the, last, at the end here and say that it's not just that Jesus eno- is enough, but that Jesus alone is enough. Okay? And I'm going to put a lot of emphasis, emphasis on that word alone for us, all right, and try to show you that he, he bears no competition, if you will, all right? So look at your passage now, we're in Mark chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 18 through 22, all right? And it begins in verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast, All right? Now, I think it's fair to say that when we think about being enough, whether it's in job success, relational happiness, or et cetera, one of the things that we are dealing with is an issue of comparison. That is, behind this question of enoughness is another question of comparison. I'll never forget when we lived in in Dallas, Texas. My wife and I have lived in a number of large cities over the years, and Dallas was, in my experience, by far one of the most obsessed cities I've ever lived in, obsessed with appearances and obsessed with comparison and especially particular parts of the city. And it really struck home to me once when we were at a grocery store, and it was around the holiday season, and they had just put out Christmas decorations, and the sign said, Get your, get your decorations up now. Beat your neighbors. It was just, I just couldn't believe it. It was just like so in your face. They weren't even trying to, to hide it, right? It was just, this was the reason to get your decorations. had nothing to do with Christmas. had nothing to do with celebrating Jesus, right? It was just strictly, you got to beat your neighbors. And you see, the question of enough always depends on comparison at some level. Now, the comparison in our text is probably not one that we make today. But I think that behind the question that's asked to Jesus here is nevertheless a comparison. And it is a comparison that mattered quite a bit in Jesus' day. And the comparison, as you've already seen, is a question of fasting. They come to him and they ask him, why don't your disciples fast? John the Baptist's disciples fast." And the Pharisees and their followers fast, so why don't your disciples? It's a question of comparison. They need to know a little bit of the Old Testament background here before we we go on from here. And that is that fasting is prescribed in the Old Testament for Israel on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. You may remember that's the once a year time where the the high priest makes a sacrifice on behalf of the whole people. It's the one time of year he gets to go into the Holy of Holies. But over the time, pious Jews had also expanded fasting for other times. So by the time you get to something like the book of Esther, when the Israelites are in exile, you find that after they hear about the king's edict to exterminate them, the people are fasting and weeping. Yeah, they're fasting and weeping. And then Esther's response to the whole thing is to to pray and fast in Esther chapter 4. And by the time of Jesus, fasting had solidified even more to become a very regular occurrence among some types of Jews. So, that when you get to Luke chapter 18 and Jesus tells that famous parable of the, of the Pharisee and the publican who go to the temple to pray, do you remember? The Pharisee stands there and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, right? He says, I, one of the things he says is, he says, I fast twice a week, right? So, that by the time of Jesus, one of the marks of the Pharisees was that they fasted twice a week, they were very particular about it. So much so that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has to warn his disciples and say, don't fast like them, right? They do it for appearances. They end up looking horrible. They make themselves look all awful, right? They don't bathe when they do it so that they, so you can see just how distraught that they are. And he says, no, when you fast, wash your face, clean yourself up, because that's not the point of fasting, right? And it's important to say, as we look at this passage this morning, that Jesus is by no means against fasting, do you see? But the question that comes to him is, why don't your disciples fast? And I suspect that the subtext here may well be one about how Jesus' disciples stack up in relation to John's disciples and to the Pharisees. The question behind the question, you might say, is something like, do they fast enough? Why don't they fast more, do you see? And the question, of course, assumes that they don't fast enough. Now, see, here's the interesting thing about enoughness, right? The trouble is that whenever you have a particular measure of enoughness for yourself, the people that bother you most are not people who stack up below you on your measure of enoughness. It's not even ultimately people who stack up higher than you on your measure of enoughness. The people that will irritate you the most are the people who don't care at all right they're the people who are playing a totally different game than you the people who aren't climbing the same ladder as you and so don't care about the thing that you have found by which to measure yourself against others and i suspect that's what lies behind this question the people are trying to figure out where do your disciples stack up we can't figure out where to put you jesus Because your disciples aren't fasting. And interestingly, Jesus replied, he does not play their game at all. So verse 19, then he gives his answer. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. And then he's going to go on, we'll come back to the next part in a minute. But you see, elsewhere fasting is connected with sorrow and sadness and need, right? And isn't that true of us too? Those of you that are in the habit of fasting at times, you don't fast typically when things are going great, do you? You fast when there's a real felt need. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't fast when the bridegroom is here, this is a time of celebration, So he shifts the question entirely. He moves it away from a question about how much is enough and instead shifts to a question about three things. What time it is, who he is, and who his disciples are. So let me tick these off real quick for you. First, he says, in essence, this is not the right time to fast for his disciples because, as I say, you don't fast when you're at a wedding, right? Wouldn't it be weird if you went to a wedding or if you were hosting the wedding, if it was your wedding, that you spent all this money on the wedding? And what's one of the big parts of weddings for us? It was certainly a big part of weddings for Jews, but it's the meal. Afterwards, imagine if you, at your own wedding, you go to sit down after the wedding and no one is eating the food that you have paid for. (laughs) Wouldn't you be deeply offended? He said, this is no time. And their response is, well, we're fasting. We're dieting. He said, this is no time to fast. This is no time to diet. This is a time for celebrating. So Jesus is saying the time is not right for that. Second, he says his disciples are essentially the wedding party. The wedding is something that they are a part of right so again is a double inappropriateness to them if they were fasting this may by the way suggest why it's perfectly fine for john the baptist disciples to still be fasting yeah because they are not so closely associated with the bridegroom the word here in greek is a bit ambiguous for the um the uh, let's see what does my translation say the wedding guests it's literally in greek something like sons of the bridal chamber actually which is a hebrew expression that could mean wedding guests, but it could also mean wedding party. And I suspect that since Jesus is talking about his disciples, he's actually putting them in the position of being like the groomsmen, if you will. Right? They're so close to the groom that it's especially inappropriate for them, and especially inappropriate now, to fast. And then finally, the last thing, of course, the most important thing, is what Jesus says about himself, that he is the bridegroom. This may be one of the most important statements in this whole passage. It tells us something quite new and very important about Jesus. If you were to pull out the commentaries on Mark and read what they have to say about this particular description of Jesus about himself, you will find that they say things like, there's no mention of the Messiah in the Old Testament being a bridegroom, and as far as we know Jewish literature of the time leading up to Jesus, there's no mention of the Messiah being a bridegroom there either. And as far as I can tell, they're they're right about this. So where does Jesus get this idea that he is the bridegroom? I suspect that the the, the place Jesus gets it from is from the Old Testament. And so this is now going to shift to our second point where I want to show you how Jesus, as the bridegroom, is enough. Because, see, what you find as you read through the Old Testament is that over and over again, the God of Israel compares himself and compares his relationship to Israel as one of what? A husband to a wife, or a groom to his bride, yes? If you turn, you don't have to turn there, but in (laughs) Isaiah 54, for example, verse 5, Isaiah says, for your maker, speaking to Israel, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called flip forward several chapters and by Isaiah 62 the, the idea is repeated in verse 5 as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you Israel Do you see what Jesus is saying he's taking that, old te- that important Old Testament theme of God being husband to his wife Israel God being the groom if you will to, to the bride and saying that's me that's who I am The Lord himself has come. He is present. How could we fast and mourn when God, our faithful husband, is in our midst? Remember how Mark's gospel starts with a citation from the book of Isaiah. And by the way, if you wanna if you're if you're interested, one of the strongest influences on Mark in writing his gospel is the book of Isaiah. He doesn't always quote it verbatim, but it's there all the way through. Remember how he starts his gospel? the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he goes to Isaiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of who? The Lord. Make his path straight. Where does John the Baptist show up when he starts his ministry? Does he show up in the center of Israelite life? In Jerusalem, you know, their equivalent of our Washington, D.C. Jerusalem is the place where things happen (laughs) if you're an Israelite, right? It's not where he goes. He goes to the wilderness. Why? Because as Mark is showing us, he's the one who prepares the way for the Lord. Well, who comes immediately after him? Jesus. See what Mark is showing us? Jesus is God himself come in the flesh. In Jesus, the bridegroom is here. How could you need, how could you want more than that? And how then could it be appropriate to fast, to mourn, when he's finally here? To better appreciate this metaphor of Jesus being the bridegroom, think for a moment with me about how the way this wedding imagery that describes God's relationship to us, his people, has expanded throughout the New Testament. Remember what Jesus' first miracle is in John's gospel? It's at a wedding. Remember that? It's at a wedding in Cana, and he turns water into wine so that the party can continue. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a parable about unprepared wedding guests, and then he goes on to tell another parable about wise and foolish virgins waiting for the groom to come. Do you remember this? Think then of Paul's teaching. It continues there. When in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives us that marvelous picture of Christ's relationship to his church and says, that's what human marriage is truly about. And then climactically, in the book of Revelation, it sums up this hope for us with a picture of the new Jerusalem, which is actually God's people, descending out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see it? All through the scriptures, God is preparing us for this moment to see that Jesus is the groom who's come for us, finally. Just before that, the great multitude in Revelation has cried out, As God's final victory by saying, let us rejoice and exult. Give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Is it any wonder that the book of Revelation closes with these words? The spirit and the bride say, come. Do you see? What Jesus is telling us in saying that he is the bridegroom is he's saying, I am what you need. I am and the one who is truly enough. Now, it's very interesting that here, one of the words that Jesus has used is he, again, he does not say that fasting is in itself bad, and he doesn't even say that fasting, now that he's come, is just totally done. Instead, he does this very interesting thing where he teaches us to think of his coming in two parts, doesn't he? Do you see, because he says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, And then they will fast in that day. Friends, that's why it's totally appropriate for us as Christians to still fast. The word taken away there, by the way, may be a very subtle reference back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, which is a word used to describe the suffering servant. And so it's probably likely here, in my opinion, that this is actually the first hint that we get in Jesus' public ministry that he is going to die. Now, he doesn't spell it out here, of course, right? And presumably the disciples probably didn't catch it, as they often don't catch things in Mark's gospel. But this bridegroom is very different. You see, in a Jewish wedding, the groom goes to the bride and takes her. But before Jesus will do that, he must be taken himself. He is presenting us with the question, what kind of groom is this? This groom is a different one than the kind that they expected You see, Jesus must suffer before he is glorified, right? He must face apparent defeat before his victory. Before the wedding, he must die. So what we're seeing here in the second point then is that Jesus is enough. Particularly, as he's suggesting, in his ministry, which will culminate in his death on our behalf. He is what we really need. All those other things that we try to find our enough in, he is what we really need. Are you with me? Now then this brings us to our third point that we need to spend some time on. Because as I said, I don't want you to just leave today thinking, we have this need for enough, and Jesus is enough. Because there is a real danger in our lives that many of us face, and that is that we think Jesus is mostly enough. He is almost <laughs> enough. And the temptation we face, even as Christians, is to just help him a little bit. To just help him a little bit. I remember when I was younger, I certainly tried to do this. One of the ways that I tried to do this as a young, younger man, a younger Christian, was when I would sin, and I had particularly besetting sins as a young man, And I would think to myself, after falling again to the same temptation that I would fallen to before, I would think, okay, if I just need to be really sorry this time, yeah, if I'm just sorry enough this time, if I cry long enough, if I pray long enough, if I can find better words to tell God I'm sorry, then, and you know what I was really trying to do without saying it, I would have never said it this way, I was just trying to help God out, just trying to help Jesus save me a little bit. As I always tell my students at the seminary, most of us do not want to be our own saviors. We just want to help Jesus save us a little bit. We don't want full credit for our salvation. We just want a little bit, do you see? And that's why this third point is so crucial for us to understand. And I want you to see it here in the text. Because something very interesting happens here. Up until now, Jesus has been asked about fasting. He's he's given the surprising reply that he's the bridegroom. And I suspect they had no idea that that was going to be the answer. That he's the bridegroom, and that's why his disciples don't fast. And then he says, verse 21, he transitions into these two very short parables that almost come out of nowhere. There's no connection even in Greek to explain exactly this. He just launches into them, and it's puzzled many people. He says, verse 21, "'No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. "'If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, "'and a worse tear is made. "'And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. "'If he does, the wine will burst the skins.'" And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, the question is, what in the world is he talking about? Right? He's been talking before about fasting. He said he's the bridegroom, and then he starts talking about clothes and sewing (laughs) and making wine. The best, the closest thing you can say is well, at least wine has something to do with weddings, right? That's about as much help as you get. But when we encounter the parables of Jesus, I want to encourage you that the best thing that you can do in interpreting, properly interpreting the parables in the Gospels is always look at their context. Always say, where do they occur? And what has been happening at this point in Jesus' ministry? You see, what the, what the two parables have in common is this. In both cases, the parables describe to us an old thing combined with a new thing and the combination ruins them. An old thing combined with a new thing and the attempt to combine them ruins things. So the first one is about the risk of patching a hole in an, an old pair of clothes with a piece of unshrunk cloth, right? You know the deal here. You've bought new clothes, you've put them in the washing machine, they come out of the dryer, and suddenly they have miraculously become a size smaller, right? That's the picture he's giving here. You take an old, already shrunk pair of pants, let's say, and you sew onto it a piece of fabric that you haven't shrunk yet by putting it through the wash, and then you put them both together in the wash, you're going to come out with a bigger problem than you started with. Do you see? And the same thing then with wine. If you put new wine into old wineskins, you end up with disaster again. Now, here we probably need a little bit of help because I suspect most of us don't have a lot of experience making wine. I certainly don't. But one commentator explains that wineskins at the time were made of leather, and they were at first soft and very pliable, But they perish and become brittle with constant use. And so they're liable to burst under the pressure of fermentation if you add new wine to them, D.C. So in both cases, we have something new added to what is old, and the result is a disaster, destruction, you might say, ruined garment, ruined wine, and ruined wineskin. Now, as I say, what's difficult about the parables is there's no explanation. And it's difficult at first to see what the connection is but notice the context at this point in mark's gospel jesus has been clashing again and again with people he's been he's starting his ministry and he's starting to run into resistance and in fact this whole larger section of 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 mark's gospel up through chapter five is is kind of a ratcheting up of the conflict between jesus and the religious leaders right so before he had healed a paralytic that caused problems. He had cleansed a leper. Then right before our passage, the problem is who he's eating with. After our passage, it'll be Jesus' relation to the Sabbath and what he says about it. And then it will, in some ways, it will culminate in chapter 3, verse 6. If you look there, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, you need to know a little something about that. The Pharisees and Herodians were not buddies. Okay, They were the equivalent of our Republicans and Democrats. So... It's like, you know, whenever the Republicans and Democrats manage to get together and actually do something together, we know this is a big deal. <laughs> right? Same thing here. If the Pharisees and Herodians are willing to get together and work together, you know something is happening. This is a big deal. What is the big deal? What do they get together to do? To find out how they might destroy him. And interestingly enough, the very word there for destroy him is the same word that's used of the wine and the wineskins being destroyed in our passage. Do you see? What Jesus is suggesting in these parables is you take the newness of Jesus, put it into contact with the oldness, the old ways of thinking about what is enough that the Pharisees have, and you're going to have destruction, right? These two forces cannot live together. I always tell my students when I teach the Gospels, I always say, if you get to the end of the Gospel, and you cannot figure out why anybody would want to kill Jesus, you have got to go back and start over, (laughs) right? Because Jesus is constantly in conflict with people. And in fact, in many cases, he seems to pick the fight. Yeah? And this does not sometimes fit our sense of Jesus meek and mild. He's nice. We like to think of Jesus as nice, don't we? That's sort of like our highest virtue in American society is being nice. (laughs) Friends, I have to tell you, Jesus is not nice in that sense. He is very happy to challenge people who need to be challenged. And we see it here, we see the conflict escalating. Now it's important here not to make a common mistake when we think about these old and the new in, this, in these two parables. Sometimes Christians have in the past, and still do, confuse Jesus' challenge to the, to the Jewish leaders and their customs with a challenge to the Old Testament itself. And if you're not careful, you may think, oh, well, the old thing is the Old Testament and the old covenant, and the new thing is Jesus and his new covenant, right? The Old Testament's kind of like, Ugh, you know, kind of like weird laws and weird customs and stuff, but thankfully Jesus comes and he's like, well, you can do away with that weird stuff now, right? Like Jesus comes so we don't have to be as weird, <laughs> right? Like if you thought this way before, certainly people do. But the, the, the great problem with that, of course, is that again, in the parables, the things are destroyed at the end in their combination and that's completely different from the way that Jesus and in fact the Gospel writers present the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. Do You see the great metaphor for Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament is one of fulfillment, not destruction but fulfillment. Now to be sure in fulfilling it he does change some things, I'm not denying that. He says in Matthew's Gospel, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets but to fulfill them and that does mean that we do some things differently, you have not killed sheep up here on stage in a while I suspect. Yes? All right. Just checking. Right? Some things have changed, but there's a greater continuity between the two. And Mark, of course, is at pains to show that. No, what's old is the Pharisee's way of measuring people up, of sizing people up, of deciding what counts before God and what doesn't. So the old here, again, is something like the expectations and religious customs of these various groups that are steadily coming into conflict with Jesus at this point in Mark's gospel. Their categories are too hardened, and the only thing that could result in trying to combine their way of thinking about how to measure up before God and Jesus's is destruction. Is destruction. Jesus and his opponents are like oil and water, right? They're incompatible. They can't be mixed now, this leads me to ask the question, what in particular, then, is the new wine and the new wineskins? Because I want you to notice something that's interesting about Mark's parables here, okay? Um, this same passage, by the way, occurs in uh, the, the other two synoptic gospels, in Matthew and Luke, okay? And Mark's, Mark's has one little interesting distinct feature. I mean, it has a few others, but this is the mo- this is the biggest one, and it comes at the very end. Do you see, Oftentimes in Jesus' parables, he will pile up parables on top of each other as a way to kind of increase or escalate his teaching. Let me give you one quick example of this, okay? In Luke chapter 15, where we get the prodigal son, right? If you actually go back and read the prodigal son sometime, go back and do it. Read the whole chapter. And realize that in in Luke chapter 15, Jesus does not tell one parable. He tells three. Yeah? The first one he tells is a lost sheep. The second one he tells is a lost coin. And that tells us that the third parable he teaches is about two lost sons. Yeah? The parable of the prodigal son is very much a parable about lostness. And what's interesting is you go through those three parables and then compare them. In the first one, you have one sheep that is lost out of how many? A hundred. In the second parable, you have one coin that is lost out of ten. And in the third parable, you have two sons that are lost out of two. (laughs) Do you see how there's a kind of ratcheting up, right? There's a gravity, and there's increase, and I think that's what happens with these two little parables here, even though they're very, very short. Because do you notice that in the first one, in the first one, he doesn't tell us that the patch itself is destroyed. Now I hope I'm not splitting hairs here, and I think you'll see why in a second. But in the first one, he says, "No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear, and, the, and a worse tear is made." You see. The original garment gets worse, but we don't learn anything about the patch. But in the second one, both things are ruined. Do you see that? In the second one, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. You see, both things are destroyed. And then this is the distinctive mark and feature. This is the part that Mark adds, or that he includes that the others don't. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Do you notice how he doesn't give a positive statement with the, with the cloth? In other words, he doesn't tell us what we should do. He tells us what will go wrong if we do it this way, but that doesn't tell us what we should do. Now, you could probably figure it out. It's not that hard. But I still find it interesting that only with the wine and the wineskins does Jesus then turn it positively and say, but here's what you should do. Here's what should be done. You should put new wine into new wineskins. Now, I hope it's clear by now at some level, that Jesus and his ministry are what he has in mind with new wine. Jesus, in his ministry, and ultimately in his death and resurrection, has brought something truly new for us. Not surprisingly, that's exactly what the crowd has already said, in fact. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 27, after teaching in the synagogue and healing a man with an unclean spirit, the people are amazed and they say to themselves, what is this? See, they don't have a category for him, do they? A new teaching with authority. You see, Mark is telling us that Jesus, his mission, and his ministry is the new thing. It's the new wine. In fact, the next time, the only other time that Mark will use this word new, is interestingly enough at the Last Supper when Jesus gives his disciples the cup of wine. That he says is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then he says he will not drink the fruit of the vine, that is wine, again, until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Do you see what he's pointing us to see? He is what's new. He's coming. He's shocked the people. They don't have a category. They don't know what to do with him. Because he's able to cast out even unclean spirits. And he teaches with authority, unlike what they're used to. And then, of course, the shock of shocks in Mark's gospel is going to be that this person with authority is going to give it up in death for his people. The ultimate newness is Jesus' death on our behalf. That's the new wine that Jesus has come. Now, this is why I said the most important word in 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 this third point is the word alone. You cannot take Jesus and his ministry, his death and resurrection on your behalf, and try to add it to what you already know. New wine is going to require new wineskins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. You, you cannot hope to add the new wine of Jesus to an unconverted heart. This is the mistake of the Pharisees. They did not see it because they refused to see it. That they are, they are the sinners and the tax collectors that we've encountered in the previous story right before ours. Remember, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and he says, Look, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. They don't see it. And so the question turns to us. What sort of wineskins have you tried to add Jesus to? Some of us, I suspect, would like to add him to our life. Right? To tack him on as like a bonus. Oh, my job is going great, my family's going great, and I just need that one little extra thing. (laughs) You know what's really interesting? You know, the t- you know that many, um, it's wonderful to see so many young people here this morning. You know that many, many kids who grow up in church, the time where they leave church is in college, right? You know the time when they most often come back? It's when they have their first child. Because now they think, ooh, I need some help. Yeah, right? I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> but the, the danger is of thinking, oh, this is, a ta- this is an add-on. This is a tack-on. I've got my marriage set now. You know, I've got my job. We have bought a house. Now I'm having children, okay, it's time to add a little bit of Jesus to the mix. No, friends, it's not what he wants. Jesus is not some kind of spiritual cherry on top of your Sunday, (laughs) right? Jesus can't be added to what you already have, any more than unshrunk patch can be added to an old garment. So the question is, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from surrendering the whole of your life to him? Might it be fear of losing that thing that you think makes you enough? I wonder, I, I had my son said something to me fascinating a couple years ago. I thought, and I was thinking about this this morning as I prepared, I thought, you know, one of the ways that we feel this is in our anxiety. When we don't feel like we're enough, we feel anxiety, right? And my son was about two, two and a half years old, and, and he was in a phase of life where he really didn't like going to the nursery. And every week we'd have trouble with him. He'd just cry and cry and cry, and we'd had, we were having such a hard time with him. And so one week we, found that we sat down and we thought, we need to kind of prepare him for it so it's not like as soon as we get to church, now it's nursery time. And my wife said to him, she said, Westcott, now when we get to church today, I don't want you to be worried or nervous about going to Sunday school, okay? And he, as only a two-year-old could, he looked up at her and so sweetly he said, okay, mama, what should I be worried about? <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought to myself, you know, isn't that it? Some of you are anxious, because if you are really honest with yourself, you like to be anxious. You actually find it comforting. And if someone were to say, oh, you don't have to be worried about this, you would immediately say, well, then what should I be worried about? Do you see, when Jesus comes along, he forces us to abandon everything else that we have been grasping onto to make us enough. He says, you have to let it go completely. You can't take your old wineskins and assume that you can add me to it. I'm all or nothing. There's a great old commentary on the parables. Sometimes the old ones are better than the new ones. By a 17th century English Baptist named Benjamin Keach. And in his chapters on these two little parables, and yes, he has chapters on these parables. <laughs> Again, you're thinking like, most of you are thinking right now, why does he keep using that word parables, by the way? All right? Well, it's because Luke does in his account. All right, And you can't limit parable to just the longer stories Jesus tells. Sometimes they're short little sayings like this. Okay. Anyways, this, this guy has chapters on these. And, and at one point he says, those who would be saved and accepted by God must not think to patch their old garment by putting on a part or a piece of Christ's righteousness or of adding a part or a piece of his merits to their own, but they must throw it quite away in point of justification. Or they must not think that Christ they must instead think that Christ and His righteousness, they are the whole garment that must be put on before they or any of their duties, whether prayer or fasting, can be accepted of God. you see? Even the good things that we look to to think that's what makes us enough. Jesus says, you must put those aside, too. It's all of me or none of me. He is never simply a patch. He cannot be added to your old wineskins. One of the great promises of the scriptures is Jesus is more than enough, isn't he? There's that old saying from Nate Saint that says, He is no fool who would give what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. Do You see, whatever that thing is that you've been holding on to to think that's what makes you enough, the reality is that it's not making you enough. That's why you keep having to get more and more of it. That's why it never satisfies. And the great truth of the gospel is if you would finally set that thing aside, you would find that Christ is more than enough for you. I want to close here with just reminding you of some of these passages we've already looked at, in particular the one in Revelation. When the people of God descend as this, surprisingly, as a city, they're a city who's a bride. It's, it's weird. It's Revelation, okay? You got to deal with it. <laughs> but but when, the, when God's people descend from heaven, She is said to be prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I want to ask you this morning, where do we get that adornment as Christ's bride? If you are a believer here this morning, and you want to know where does your adornment come from? The book of Revelation consistently, when God's people are described as being clothed in the book of Revelation, it is God who has clothed them. You see, go back to the prodigal son. When he returns to his father, he's ragged. He's spent all his money. He's wasted everything. And his father brings him the best robe. His father brings him the breast robe. To this list again, we could go back to Paul, who in Ephesians 5 says that Christ died for his bride so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. In splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And friends, all of this goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Remember what happens when Adam and Eve sinned? They become aware for the first time that they are what? Naked. See, they had always been naked, but now suddenly they're aware of it, and they're ashamed. And what does God do? He comes to them, and he finds that they have made these really lousy clothes. (laughs) Does he rip them off and say, now look at you. Look what you are. No. He takes off their inadequate clothing, right? And he makes his own clothing for them to replace theirs. You see, the story that God is telling the Bible is a story of a runaway bride, if you want to think of it this way. The story of a runaway bride that the the groom has pursued and pursued and pursued. And when he finds her down and out in rough shape, her hair is a total mess. She's got no makeup on. She's on any way ready for her wedding. He does not cast her off, but rather he cleans her up. He gives her, normally in our weddings, right, the groom should not see the dress before. In this case, the groom actually buys the dress for the bride. You see, in our endless quest for enoughness, the one that we really need, the one who completes us, is the one who supplies all that we lack and has come for us. Friend, the new garment that you need is given to you by Christ and only by Christ. The new wineskin that you need to receive for his new wine is given given to you by Christ. The only question for you then this morning is, have you received it? Will you receive it? Are you willing to lay down all those other things that you have clung to as making you enough and say, no, he alone is enough for me. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so grateful for your Son who has come for us, your wayward bride, your wayward people. He has come to us in our mess, in our shabbiness, in our brokenness, and he has found us naked and clothed us. Father, we look to him, we turn to him this morning. It's, of course, in his name and his name alone that we pray. Amen.